This morning, before we begin, uh, I want, or as we continue, before we begin the sermon, I, we're going to pray. Typically in our pastoral prayer time, which is right before the sermon, we thank God for His work among the nations. We thank God and pray for brother and sister churches around this city and around the world. Uh, we praise our great God for His grace to us, and we ask for His hand of blessing to be on us. And this morning, I want to bring several things to your attention as a church. As a matter of prayer, uh, a friend of mine by the name of Garrett Kell, um, his daughter, who is just a few months younger than my own daughter, uh, was taken to the hospital this weekend with seizures. She's in ICU. Um, she cannot stop having these seizures. She's on a ventilator. Just 15-year-old girl named Eden. So we want to pray for her and their family. He's a pastor at Delray Baptist Church in the suburb of D.C. Um, we're also mindful that Ben and Alyssa Lewis, uh, Ben is here. He was playing the bass over here this morning. And his wife gave birth by C-section Friday to their son Simon. And uh, he's premature. Lord willing, uh, she and little Simon will be out of the hospital in a day or two. Uh, we're also mindful of Brian Combs, a member in our church who's been battling cancer for quite a while and was in and out of the hospital this weekend with pneumonia and RSV. Um, things are not going and looking well for him. Um, one of our elders, Tyler Blumenthal, he is not here this week um, because he's on a plane going down to Arizona. His dad's cancer is, is really taking a turn for the worse. And then I look over here and I see Royce and Marcy, and um, we pray for their daughter-in-law, Danielle, and their son, Josh, and their children. And so this is a joyful day, but it's also a heavy day. And that's the nature of life, isn't it? There's good and bad all at the same time. And so we want to just bring this to our Lord this morning. God, we come to you as a humble people who certainly need to exalt in our Savior's birth. That is the best news. In fact, in your victory over the grave, you have given us a victory over the grave. You have given us the ability to have joy and peace, to have strength and comfort in hard seasons. And so this morning, Lord, we lift up Eden. We pray that the doctors would be able to find out what is causing this. We praise you for your faithfulness to the Kell family. We pray that they would continue to trust in you regardless of what happens. And we thank you, Lord, that not only are we praying for them this morning, but churches around this world who know Garrett and his wife Carrie and who care for them are praying for them as well. We pray that the, the medication that they're giving to try to calm these seizures down is also creating serious side effects. And so we ask, Lord, that you would protect her organs and her brain. We pray that she would be able to get the MRI that she needs in spite of the holidays and the full schedules of doctors and other patients. We pray that she would be restored to her mother and her father. We pray for Tyler and his family. We pray for Brad and this unexpected diagnosis of cancer and then the quick progression that has prompted the family to gather around him, we pray that you would comfort them today, Lord. 
And we pray that you would bring good according to your will. We pray for our brother Brian Combs, he and Betsy, who are home and probably watching us on live stream right now. We pray that you would strengthen them and comfort them. Be with their daughters as well, Lord. We ask that your will would be done in Brian's life, that you would give rest, patience, and hope. And we thank you, Lord, that even in the bitterness of these requests, even as we think of Josh and Danielle Shields and her ongoing struggle with cancer, we thank you that they're able to be here with their family and celebrate this Christmas. May it not be the last. And yet there's rejoicing as well, Lord, for today a child has been born. And we thank you for the safe arrival of little Simon Lewis. We pray that he and his mother would be released from the hospital soon, that uh, there would be no side effects from his premature coming into this world. We know that all things are in your hand. And Lord, we have to trust in that. We want to trust in that, and we do trust in that. And so now, Lord, as we look to your word and as we consider what it has for us, we have sung about the greatness of the Christ who has come into this world. And the text this morning it calls us to trust in that one in the midst of our suffering. And so, Lord, build your church upon your son, Jesus. For this is the mighty name in which we pray this morning. Amen. If you would open your copy of Scriptures this morning and join me in John chapter 16. Uh, we have been working our way through John's Gospel and... Um, I know sometimes um, s sovereignly the text lands on a Sunday that is just only God could plan this. And um, instead of breaking from it to uh, go to Luke 2, uh, we can talk about that a little bit more tonight. We're going to continue on in our series through John's Gospel. And this morning we find ourselves at the end, middle half of the Gospel, beginning in verse 16, working our way down to verse 33. And so encourage you to turn to that place in your copy of the Scriptures, whether that's digital or physical. And if you don't have a physical Bible with us, uh, with you, go ahead and use one of those blue Bibles in the chairs. Uh, you can take that home as a gift from South Canyon. And if you find your way to page 902, you can follow along. It will really help you a lot to stay tracking with me this morning. Um, three times in this passage, Jesus speaks of his death and resurrection, and these declarations shape the, uh, the text and its structure, and they also reveal Jesus' argument. And I think it's timely given the prayer requests that we, uh, the needs that we just prayed over. And this is it. Whether you're in the midst of crisis or not, this is a tool that Jesus is preparing his disciples for, and so therefore, by proxy, you and I can all benefit from this, okay? We don't need to be in the middle of suffering to care about this. Jesus' disciples weren't quite there yet, and he wanted them to be prepared for his death and the fallout that would come from it, and so I think it applies to us as well this morning. Here's the question. How is it that you and I can have joy in suffering. And by joy, I'm not talking about skipping and puppies and rainbows and, and everything's just fun. But I'm talking about a peace that allows you to stand above and outside of your circumstances with trust and confidence in God 
And that though the suffering, though it is heavy and it is real, isn't what defines you as you interact with the people around you. How is it that anyone can have joy in suffering? And I think by Jesus giving three different occasions in which he talks about his death, he is showing us that his death and resurrection will be the source of your joy, your confident prayers, your love for Jesus, your peace, and ultimately your victory. I think that's the big idea of John 16, verses 16 through 33. So I'm going to repeat that. Here's the aim. This is the big idea. How can we have joy in suffering? By letting Christ's resurrection be the source of our joy, our confident prayers, our love for Him, our peace, and our victory. I'm going to show you this from the text so that you know that we're not just making things up here. South Canyon, we love to get into God's Word. It's the truth that we live by and aspire to live by. And so let's read, beginning in verse 16, follow along as I read from John's Gospel. Jesus says, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Is this hide and seek? Well, we'll get to that. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me? And again, a little while, and you will see me. So let's pause right there. This is the first of Jesus' three statements that he is going to go away, a euphemism for dying. And although the other gospel accounts record Jesus mentioning this three different times over the course of his ministry with the uh, disciples, uh, John's gospel has kind of had that on a low-key note throughout his gospel. But here in this text, Jesus is going to say it three times. Here in verse 16, again in verse 20, and again in verse 28. So in this first grouping, verses 16 through 19, we see Jesus telling them that they won't see him for a while, but they, after a little while, they will see him again. And we understand that Jesus is speaking in verse 16 of his death and resurrection. It's clear the disciples don't have a clue, Right? Typical. Verses 17 and 18, they ask each other what Jesus is meaning by his words. He's right there, guys. Why not ask him? I don't know. But that's the way the disciples work. They kind of just walked in a huddle, talking to one another. And obviously, Jesus could hear them. And even if he couldn't, he certainly could read their minds. They even include a statement that Jesus had made back in verse 10. Now, we've broken this up because it's a very large passage. And in verse 10, Jesus has said that he's going to go to the Father. So they, they've wrapped these two things together, verse 16 and verse 10, and their confusion reveals this truth. Every Jew that was alive in that day was looking for a Messiah. That's, that's a language of a, of a Savior, of a King who would come, who would throw off all of the outside uh, governing bodies, the Romans who were oppressing the 
whomever it would be, this Savior would come and rescue the nation, and He would be a great champion for them, and He would restore Israel, all of its borders, all of its rules and righteousness, and He would rule as a physical king. And so the disciples' confusion over Jesus' death is just a snapshot of every common Jew's thought. Everyone but Jesus thought this about the Messiah. He was going to be amazing. He was going to be powerful. He would be a ruler who would be physical and present, and he would oppress what is evil. He would drive out the enemies. And so every time Jesus spoke about going to the cross, and yet everyone knew he was the Messiah, his disciples, they were confused. How is this possible? One writer puts it this way. What's clear for us today was mysterious to them. If Jesus wishes to, be, to found the messianic kingdom, why would he go away? And if he doesn't wish to found the messianic kingdom, why would he return? You see the puzzle? This is exactly why verses 8 through 15 were right before verse 16. These disciples needed the Holy Spirit to give them understanding about these things. They had no clue. And in fact, what we see in verse 19 is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ because he raises the question they were afraid to ask. He's like, are you guys confused over what I'm saying? Which leads us to verses 20 through 27. The second time Jesus says, speaks about his death and his departure. He says, they will weep and the world will rejoice, but their sorrow will turn to joy. Look at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. In this second movement, Jesus is telling them, When I die, it is going to devastate you guys. The world is going to be celebrating. But know this, it will all turn, and your sorrow will turn to joy. The disciples will weep openly. They will sorrow greatly, according to verse 20. The world that's in rebellion against God will celebrate. And this all echoes Jesus' words back in chapter 15, in verses 18 through 16, verse 4. When he said that the world hated him and his followers, you remember that from a few weeks ago? The reason the world doesn't like Jesus is because he's not of them. He brings light into the world. He exposes the sin that's in us. He shows us our deficiencies, and we don't like that. 
Jesus' cross will first be a cause of sorrow for his followers, but soon it will be a source of joy. Here's, here's the reason why that transition happens. It becomes a source of joy because on that cross, the Holy One of God gave His life as an atoning substitute for us. Therefore, every single sinner that turns and looks to Jesus' finished work on the cross can experience the full and abiding peace of God to hear the words forgiven spoken over you by our Creator. And they can rejoice in that salvation forever. I'm sorry, Siri. She was speaking to me there for a moment. How timely, how timely that as we celebrate the birth of our Savior, that Jesus talks about childbirth in verse 21. I I know, I'm a man, right? I'm not going to do any mansplaining here. That's not, that's not my, we've got doctors in the room who are men who can talk about childbirth. Well, let, let me just say what Jesus' point is, okay? A woman who is in labor is consumed by anguish and pain. Any moms second that emotion? Okay. After childbirth, her mind is filled with relief that it is over. Is that true? Okay. So far, Jesus and life, they match, right? What's interesting about this analogy that Jesus uses, it wasn't new to him. It was an Old Testament analogy that was often applied to the nation of Israel and to the new Israel that would be created. So we find it in the the prophet Isaiah a couple times in chapter 26 and 66. We find it in the prophet Hosea in the 13th chapter. It, It was used by these prophets to illustrate the anguish that would come before the new Israel would emerge birth pains. And by New Testament times, this language was used to describe the day before the Messiah would come. Not the literal day, but the days, the time before that. There would be great suffering for God's people. There would be great sorrow and anguish. And then the Messiah would come, and the Messiah would bring an end to all that anguish. And so Jesus is using labor pains to establish the fact His death will indeed produce sorrow. But His resurrection will turn that sorrow into everlasting joy. And this is all a part of God's redemptive plan. It's not like the eggs broke prematurely and you had to scramble them. It's not that this was a deviation from God's plan and He had to pivot. No, this was all by God's design. Jesus helps us understand verse 22, which says... So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take that joy from you. He he tells us that the death that he is about to experience will indeed bring anguish and pain upon the disciples, but that is not the end. He will see them again after his resurrection. And their joy in seeing the risen Christ will be abiding. No one will take it from them. Further, they're going to have a fuller understanding of what God is actually doing as He is trying to redeem a people for His name. And this promise is for you and I as well. All the heaviness that we endure in this life will disappear when we see Jesus. All of it will. It will be worth it all when we see Him. 
and no one and no thing will be able to take that away from us. Jesus goes on in verse 23 and 24 to speak of his departure and the Spirit's coming and how that's going to change the way the disciples learn. See, the disciples were accustomed to asking Jesus questions about the Scriptures, about his teaching, about the coming kingdom, any other series of interests. And just as we've seen from the very night, this very night that this passage is alluding to, back in chapters 13 and 14, they asked Jesus lots of questions. But that's about to change, according to what he says in verses 23 and 24. When Jesus returns to the Father, they won't be able to ask him questions. Now they must ask the Father in Jesus' name. You see that in verse 23? In that day, remember, that day, the hour, is the death of Christ and his resurrection. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Certainly, the disciples had not been praying to Jesus. He's right there in front of them. Jesus Will you please help us? No, they don't have to do that. They can just ask him, hey, there's not enough food to feed 5,000 people, Jesus. Where are you going to get that kind of food? What do you have? Well, we've got a sack lunch. Remember that? Chapter 7? And they feed. He feeds the 5,000. Jesus, there's a storm at the sea. What, what, we're going to die. We're going to perish. And you're sleeping in the boat. And Jesus wakes up and calms the storm. On and on it goes. Jesus, Lazarus is dead. Don't open the tomb. It's been four days. It's going to smell. Open the tomb. Lazarus, come forth. All these things show us the power of Christ and the disciples' access to him, but now that's all going to change. And Jesus is saying, you guys may initially be hesitant to pray to Yahweh and to approach him the same way that you've grown accustomed to approaching me? But let me just tell you, that you pray in my name, and the Father will give you whatever you ask. Notice the exhortation in verse 24. Ask. He instructs them to ask. And then he quickly says, the Father will answer you. He, God, gives us what we ask in Jesus' name. Now, we could get into all the weeds of like, well, I just prayed for a Lamborghini for Christmas, and I got a matchbox, you know? You pray for stuff. This isn't what Jesus is talking about. Whatever you ask in his name isn't like a, a Houdini, a genie in a bottle, or anything like that. It's not the, the catchword that catches God and forces him to give you what you want. Uh, Jesus is talking about things that are related to the kingdom and the work of the kingdom and understanding of God's plan of salvation and, and why a Savior had to die rather than a Savior coming to kill the bad guys and establish his throne. So we've got to be careful in how we interpret that. But as Jesus speaks of this new covenant realities, that his death has been brought about, uh, has brought new life. It's changed many things. Back in chapter 15, what did he call the disciples? He says, you are no longer my disciples, you are my friends. This is the changes that are taking place in this new covenant. He tells them that here's the plan that I'm going to do. That's a sign of friends. You clue your friends in. The disciples, rabbis and disciples, usually the rabbi just was out at the front and the disciples had to trail along behind. 
They weren't told what was going to happen or why it was going to happen or when it was going to happen. They were just told, now go, now do. And Jesus is saying, everything's changing. I'm going to give you a look behind the curtain. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus is saying, my path to exaltation is through the cross. And now, secondly, you guys who've never prayed to me will pray to Yahweh in my name. And you will do so because you understand that obedience is what it means to abide in Jesus' love and to abide in Jesus' word. And the Spirit is going to produce fruit in you, which is going to look like answered prayer and joy in Christ. And so Jesus has basically condensed all of chapter 15 and 16 in one sentence here. And I see two things going on. Jesus is telling his disciples this, so they'll wait with expectation for the Spirit's coming. And that is a sign to them that the promises are taking place. And then I see it secondly as John doing this. He's writing to Jewish people who have heard about this Christianity These Jewish people no longer live in Jerusalem or Judea because the Roman persecution against them has broken out and they've been scattered around the kingdom, uh, the empire of Rome. And John is writing to them to consider the facts that Jesus is indeed the Messiah they've been told about. But he came in a different way to accomplish a different work, a far greater work. And so John is basically using this moment right here, what Jesus says in verses 23 and 24, to call for repentance, to call for these readers to become Christians. He tells them that only in Christ can you have access to the Father. You see, both groups, the disciples of Jesus and John's readers, are promised the same thing. That the Father answers prayers made in Jesus' name for his purposes. You can never, ever doubt that God loves you when you pray for the forgiveness of sins through Jesus' death on the cross. That is a bedrock certainty of the Christian faith. That God loves sinners. That's the summation of the gospel. And sinners who put their trust in Christ and who cry out for Christ are assured that God hears those prayers and He will give them what they ask, which is forgiveness, which is eternal life, which is reconciliation with the Creator that we've been estranged from. God will bring these things to pass. You think of this. What joy we have as believers to have direct access to God. We can ask for things in keeping with gospel motives and attitudes, the very things Jesus spoke of in chapter 15, that God would help us to obey Jesus, to walk in a manner that's pure and holy, that we wouldn't be given over to lust and pride and covetousness, that He would deliver us from these things, that He would expose our sinful hearts, that He would help us to abide in Jesus and His love, and that His Spirit would teach us all of Jesus' words and ways so that our faith would grow and produce gospel fruit. Verse 25, Jesus declares that the hour is coming again where he will no longer use figures of speech. 
And he's referring to all the things that he said that night and even in the years prior. After his resurrection, he's going to shed these colloquialisms, these metaphors and analogies, and he'll speak plainly with the disciples about the Father. After he returns to heaven, the Holy Spirit will also take the, the things that Jesus has said and he will unpack them so that the people who have the Spirit will understand the significance of Jesus' incarnation, taking on flesh, his death, his resurrection, the things that he taught while he was here, and even his return to heaven. Jesus says in verse 26 and 27, that in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So he speaks about prayer in verses 23 and 24. Things are going to shift, guys. You're no longer going to have me to ask. You're going to need to pray to the Father. But then he returns to prayer in verses 26 and 27 to make a couple very important remarks to his disciples, clarifying things. Not only do you need to pray to the Father in my name, Jesus says, but you need to understand that you actually don't need me to intercede for you with the Father. You don't need me to be an intermediary. You don't need me to be the one who kind of butters up the Father so he gives you the request that you're asking for. The disciples don't need to entice Jesus to help them, nor do they need Jesus' help to entice the Father to help them. Jesus says that in verse 26. Praying in Jesus' name means simply, we are coming to the Father simply because of what Jesus has done, His work on the cross. His person and His work for sinners. That's the only reason that any of us have access to the Father. None of us are better than the others as it relates to sin against the Holy God. And this doesn't contradict passages like Romans 8.34, which tells us that Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Or Hebrews 7.25, which says something very similar. Nor does it contradict what John will write later in 1 John 2.1. If anyone does sin, know this, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Nor does it contradict our memory verse for this month, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You see, all these passages that I just referenced speak of Christ's atoning and priestly work for us, which produces effective and perpetual uh, basis for us to come to God and approach Him in prayer. In other words, Jesus' work as a mediator in God's plan of salvation has opened the door for us to pray to the Father directly with absolute confidence that He will hear us and answer us. Every time we pray, we don't have to go to a priest and say, pray for us. Every time we pray, we don't have to go and, and pray, oh, Jesus Please convince the Father that this is a legitimate request and that He will, in kindness and gentleness, uh, extend grace to me yet again. He's given us all the grace in Christ. And therefore, we can boldly approach the throne of grace and pray and know that God hears those prayers because 
Christ's righteousness has covered our sins and has been applied to us. In verse 27, Jesus tells them, the basis of all this is the Father loves you guys. You need to know this. Their faith in Jesus has has resulted in the Father's love. Now, the, the Father and the Son are of such unity that one is not the bad guy and the other is the good guy. Because what one is, the other is. Jesus and the Father are both good. And therefore, we need to know that God's heart for sinners, the Father's heart for sinners, isn't one of begrudging grace, but of loving and lavish grace. What does John 3.16 say? Watch a football game. I'm sure you'll see it on the screen today. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God loves sinners. It's not that God is begrudging in His love towards sinners. It's lavish. He gave us His own Son. And therefore, Jesus says, you guys need to understand how these two things fit together. God loves you guys. And so the Father doesn't have to be arm-wrestled in order to answer your prayers. It's impossible for one to be nice and the other not. Everything that Jesus has done and said and spoken is as a result of what He's seen from the Father. Therefore, the love that Jesus shows is a mere reproduction. The mere reality of what God and how He feels towards sinners. Now, to be clear... Jesus isn't saying God's love is granted to you because they love Jesus, therefore the Father must love them. Let's be very clear about this. We cannot earn God's love. There is no righteousness in us that somehow forces God to respond to us with grace. That's not the truth. We don't earn God's love. In fact, We owe our love to Christ's prior work in us. That's the reason why we love Jesus, is because He first loved us. We respond to love. We can't produce it. And this work of grace, this work of grace that Christ has done for us, it comes from the very heart of the Father. If you look back at chapter 15, just a few verses back from where we're at, Verse 16 says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Jesus is very clear about this. The reason we love him is because he first loved us. And to this point, we've seen that in spite of our suffering, these disciples are going to be panicked after Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus says, my resurrection will be the source of your joy and your confident prayers and your love for me. So now let's see how Christ's resurrection becomes the source of our peace and victory. As we look at verses 28 through 33, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples ask, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative language. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. 
I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. This third time that Jesus speaks of his death in verse 28, he's declaring that he has overcome the world and he returns to the Father in victory. He summarizes his entire earthly life and ministry in verse 28. Supernaturally conceived by the Holy Spirit, the eternal light of heaven, the divine God himself came into this world as a baby, born into the kingly line of David, yet laid in a manger. The fact that today and tomorrow we celebrate his birth only sharpens the contrast of this passage. Jesus told the disciples he is going to return to the Father after after what? After a glorious long reign? No, after a death on a cross and a resurrection from a grave. Jesus says he came from the Father into this world. That's what he says in verse 28, which means his origins prove he is divine, the divine Savior. His destination, going back to the Father, means that he has the Father's approval which testifies that Jesus' salvation is a genuine salvation that is real and enduring. The disciples assume in verse 29 and 30 that this is the plain speech Jesus has been talking about. Did you catch that? They're excited. Now you're speaking plainly. Now we get it. I think John is recording this account very truthfully. He's, He's wanting us to know that they totally missed it. They swung big and they missed it. They applied, they wrongly applied Jesus' future plain speech to that moment right there. And in one sense, Jesus did speak plainly about his departure in verse 28. But the hour, as we saw back in verses 25 and 26, that he's been referring to is the hour after his resurrection. It's a figure of speech. It's not the, a specific 60-minute window. It's just the period of time after his resurrection. And they jumped the gun. They thought that Jesus was talking about that very moment. Had they really understood what Jesus was saying, I think they would have had quite a different reaction. Yet even now, even though they missed the big picture about Jesus' plans to bring us salvation into this world through his death, they were right about Jesus' ability to His connection with the Father, his relationship with God. And we see this bears out. If you finish the book of John and you go begin the book of Acts, you see that the Holy Spirit does come in Acts 2. And then and only then did the disciples truly understand Jesus' purpose and plan. These men who are weak, who are cowardly, who are afraid, they become bold. They have a conviction You can do whatever you want to us, but we must obey God rather than man. They preached to the very people who nailed Jesus to the cross. And they declared that this Christ whom you have killed, God has raised from the dead. What changed these men? It was the Spirit of God coming into them, convincing them all the things that Jesus said were indeed true. And they had seen His resurrected body. They had talked with Him. They had shared meals with Him. They had spent days with Him. They were unmistakably convinced to the very core of who they were that He is alive. And Jesus, in their boldness and their fervor, 
Now we believe that you have come from God. Jesus responds in verses 31 and 32 with some sobering words. Their sincere but misguided statement elicits a rebuke from Jesus. You should read verse 31 as more like, really? Really, you believe. You sure about that? Yes, you are right. I did come from God. I just told you I did. But Jesus knew they really didn't understand his teaching about his death and resurrection and why it was necessary to bring about this new Israel, this Jews and Gentiles worshiping together, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. So it's not surprising that they were misguided. Jesus has already said he wanted to share more with them back in verse 12 of chapter 16, but they weren't ready to hear it. Just a few hours earlier, on that same night, back in chapter 13 and verse 38, Jesus told Peter, when he testified, I'll go with you to death, Jesus says, dude, you are going to deny me three times. And now, now Jesus says, after this confession of faith, each and every one of them will abandon him in his darkest hour. They will not stand firm in the face of difficulty and danger. The fact that that isn't the case proves that their faith isn't yet solidified. In a sad twist of irony, their hour of scattering will actually come before Jesus' hour of plain speech. And regardless of how the disciples respond when Jesus is arrested that night and they flee. Some of them do trail behind, but overall, they are not willing to be marked as his followers. They hole up in the upper room for days until they wonder what's going to happen to them. And yet, what we see in verse 32 is Jesus' confidence in the Father's faithfulness. Friend, look at that verse. Look at verse 32. I have said, uh, he says, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. We've done a lot of heavy lifting here in the theology and the purpose of this passage, but let me just get it right down to where you're at today. So you are a single mother raising a child all by yourself. You're living hand to mouth, paycheck to paycheck. You're, you're seeing your adult children who were raised in the church walk away from God, question the faith, or not at all live in a way that brings God honor and glory. And they're not at all interested in your pleas and your, your questions and your invitations. You are struggling with a loss your father will not abandon you and the proof of this is because Jesus said when I go to my father I will send you a comforter a helper a paraclete who will be in you not alongside of you but in you we saw that last week therefore for every Christian the spirit of God is in you therefore God cannot abandon you he will not leave you nor forsake you. And you have, to, you have to trust these things. And by God's grace, in a community as large as South Canyon is, you can talk to other Christians who can testify, I have seen Jesus do this in my life. I've seen him help me when I buried a child. I've seen him help me when I lost a spouse. I've seen him provide more and more than I could have ever asked or even thought of in a better job than the one that I thought was great that was just taken from me. 
We need the witness of the community to encourage us when our faith is weak and when we are questioning whether indeed it's worth it. We might hear Jesus' response of, really, you believe, is somewhat sharp. To our eyes and ears, it seems that the disciples appear to have faith. And yet, we have to remember the, the larger narrative of Scripture, the testimony of all four Gospels that show us time and time again they don't understand. It was only after the resurrected Christ stood before them and some of them literally touched the nail holes in his hands and the wound in his side before they really understood. One writer puts it this way. <clears throat> this reality that these disciples are just as human as you and I actually supports the argument that the church built on Jesus Christ is no accident, nor the result of human effort. These men... John included, left Jesus. They had weak faith. They repeatedly got it wrong. But Christ changed them when he rose from the dead. And they could never forget that. Praise the Lord that the church depends on what God has done in Christ and not on the courage of its very first members. And nor does it depend on us on our courage, our faithfulness. God is going to build His church on the gospel. We don't have to twist God's arms to grant us our prayers. He loves us. What's true of the disciples then is true for us. I mean, there may be a time in our lives where we, we were tested in our faith and we ran from Jesus. And let me remind you that God saw this before it happened. Just as Jesus saw the disciples' betrayal before it happened, God saw yours. And yet God chose to love us through Christ. Praise the Lord for that. What grace. What grace we have been given. And so we need to embrace the grace that comes through Christ we can confess those sins of weakness on our part. We can move on in rejoicing. Jesus, what he has said for the disciples is true for you and I as well. We cannot be afraid to pray in faith. God loves us. He loves us. We are forgiven because of what Jesus has done. Because our Father loves us. The Father has given us his spirit because he loves us. He's given us His Word because He loves us. We look, we look at the end of the passage, verse 33, and we see yet again the mercy and grace of our Lord Jesus. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. To be in Christ is to be prepared to have peace. I think there's two aspects to the peace that Jesus is referring to here. First, there's the far future that he's predicting the disciples after he ascends to heaven are going to have tribulation and suffering. They're going to be persecuted for the faith. They're going to go to the cross for the name of Jesus. And by saying what he's saying now, he is preparing them to endure that suffering 
knowing the peace of Jesus. And then he's speaking of a more near future. Guys, in just a few hours, I'm no longer going to be with you. And when I'm gone, you're going to feel abandoned. You're going to certainly feel shame, uneasiness, and doubt over the fact that you left me. But I want you to know that in me, you can have peace. I've seen it already. I know what's going to happen. And know this. I win. I've overcome the world. The very thing you're afraid of, I've defeated it. And so in me, you can not only have peace, but you look at the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's predicted their suffering and desertion. He gives them the assurance and confidence that he still loves them in spite of their weakness. In him, they have peace. Friend, you and I, we have no confidence in our own ability to stand in the face of severe persecution. We have no confidence that if it's going to cost us our job to live for Jesus or we have to cave to something, we're probably not sure what we're going to do. Nor do we have confidence even in our own ability to overcome the adversity we're dealing with right now. We may be getting our tails beat by the stuff we're dealing with. But our confidence... Our peace is in a Savior who knows these things and loves us through them and in spite of them. Who says, I can handle this for you. Trust me with it. And know on the other side of things, I'm going to bring you forth. Refined. I'm going to make your faith stronger. We see the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoking wick. He's gentle. He's lowly. For in spite of what he knows about our weak faith and how we will choose to follow one other path rather than his, he concludes with a word of promise and encouragement. He said all these things so that in him they will have peace and they will love him for it. Now, to the non-Christian, it seems that Jesus' death is the end of it all, a failed effort. But Jesus says, no, this is going to actually be the place of his greatest victory. He will defeat sin and death and the world and its ruler. Nothing will be able to touch him again. He says, I have overcome the world. It's in the perfect tense, this Greek word, which means that Jesus' declared victory is an enduring victory. It wasn't a one and done. It wasn't like he went to the NBA finals and won the best out of seven, barely squeaking out that tie-breaking game. Jesus, in one victory, eviscerated the enemy. He has defeated all sin. He has defeated death. And this enemy who he has defeated, Satan, will never recover, Christian. And this victory continues to our day, and it will continue for all eternity. It's true. Yes, the world in rebellion against God still has power to wield the sword, to make life painful for us. Sin and the curse of sin is still working its ways in our body. But these are only the last desperate acts of a defeated and dying enemy. 
And you know what? Even those wounds can't rob us of the eternal life that we have in Jesus. In Christ's victory, we have joy. We have peace and a certain hope. And according to what he says here in verse 33, everyone who lives in this world will have much trouble. But those who live in Christ have hope. How can we have joy in suffering? Well, you won't find it in this world. I'm sorry, kids. The, 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 the stuff that you're about to open today or tomorrow, it's cool. It's nice. But that won't produce enduring joy. Jesus will, though. In his resurrection, if we are convinced by the Spirit that indeed Jesus is the divine God who took on flesh, he died for sinners because the holy God has judgment prepared for sinners. And Jesus stood in the place. His perfect life, his atoning sacrifice, his sin substitute, he bore the wrath meant for us. And so now he has given us the means to have a righteous declaration from the Father because we trust that is sufficient. For those who believe that, oh friend, man, the world is our oyster we can have joy. We can have confidence that our prayers are going to be answered. We can see our love for Christ grow more and more. We will have peace in the midst of suffering because ultimately we know all things do indeed work together for good for those who are called according to His purposes. Lord, we pray and ask that Your Spirit will convince the unbeliever that Jesus is the answer to their deepest need. We pray that men and women and children would cry out to you for forgiveness and salvation. And Father, as your children, whom you have redeemed, we ask that you would help us to hold fast to the person and work of Jesus. Even when we aren't holding on to him, may you hold on to us, even in suffering. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we are going to have um, a time to reflect on this death of Christ. And we sang a song earlier that um, spoke of the prophets telling that the child that was born was born to die. And so as we do on the third Sunday of the month, we are celebrating uh, communion, uh, although this is the fourth Sunday because it's the fifth Sunday month. Sorry, I'm getting into the weeds we are going to share the Lord's table together this morning and celebrate this one who gave his life for us. And communion is just a sweet expression of all the truths that we've heard this morning. What Christ did for us, giving his life for you and I, and for those of us who have indeed believed in Christ, whom God has awakened to new life, are joyfully looking forward to this table that one day we will share it with him in heaven. And again, all the pain, all the stuff, it, it's going to fade away when we see Christ. And so as we come to the table, we are celebrating this because we recognize He took our place. He bore the wrath of God that was meant for us. And it's a celebration by local churches, 
believers who place their faith in his death, resurrection, and return. So if you're here visiting with family and you're not a member of South Canyon Baptist Church, if you have a relationship with Christ, one of faith, if you are in good standing with a like-minded gospel church, then we invite you to join us in this celebration. And so I'm going to ask the men to come. And uh, as they come, and just as a reminder that this, this is for those who recognize the spiritual realities behind the symbols.